Well, hey, y'all, Tyler McKenzie here from Northeast Christian Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast today. We hope that our messages are equipping you to unleash Jesus' love every day, everybody, everywhere. If this podcast has impacted you at all, we would love to invite you to partner with us by giving to our Love the Ville outreach offering. I just remind you, 100% of that goes to serving the least and the lost in our community and around the world. This is what our church wants to be known for. So please prayerfully consider making a gift if we've blessed you at all. You can go to nechurch.org slash give for the details. And now we'll send you over to the podcast. Let's read from God's word today. We're gonna read from John chapter one, verses one through 18. This is John's strange version of the Christmas story, um, a poem about the theme, in my opinion, the central theme of Christmas, incarnation. John one, verse one. John writes, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, by the way. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. What a tragedy. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. What a tragedy. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God, born of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and true. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, amen. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Word of the Lord, you can be seated. Thanks be to God for every last word of his word. What a passage. All right, so uh, we're in week four of a Christmas sermon series that we've been in, uh, been in called Finding Peace in an Anxious World. Finding Peace in an Anxious World. Relevant, right? Relevant. Uh, and the goal of this series has been to equip everyone with the spiritual resources and the spiritual truths that we need to beat back the anxiety that many of us feel. And that gets further exacerbated and intensified during the holiday season. We just seem to get more anxious, right? I've said it for weeks now. I'll say it again. Uh, 
You can jingle the bells. You can sing about Parson Brown and Winter Wonderlands all you'd like. You can drink your peppermint mocha from your Starbucks red cup. You can jam pentatonics. You can hang lights on your house that rival Clark Griswold. Go for it. Makes us all feel good when we drive by. But there is absolutely nothing that you can do to make December 25th truly magical on your own. You know it's one of the darkest and coldest days of the year, right? You know it's not actually Jesus' birthday, right? Historians estimate it's sometime in September. And you know that all the values that our economy has built Christmas around have nothing to do with the man who Christmas is supposed to celebrate. So if you're putting a sort of redemptive pressure on Christmas to somehow save you and wake you up out of the malaise you've been feeling over the past several months, I'm just gonna tell you this random day that was set apart by man, not God, it's not gonna magically save you from your pain. You're just gonna be another casualty of the anxiety and disappointment of the holiday season. It might make you feel happy for a week or two, but eventually January hits and all the decorations get rolled up and the pain gets rolled right back out. None of it has any real power to change the human heart. The only thing that makes this season truly magical is if what I just read from God's word is true. If the word who is God who through all things was created, who is the light that the darkness cannot extinguish. If that word became flesh and out of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Oh, well, Merry Christmas. And perhaps, just perhaps this holiday has something to offer us in this anxious world, amen? So uh, that's what the series has been out. Uh, in week one, we talked about choosing hope over despair. Week two, we talked about choosing confession over concealment. Week three, perseverance over fragility. And today, I wanna to talk about choosing local presence over omnipresence. This is one of the main themes of incarnation here that we find in the Christmas story. We must choose local presence over omnipresence. Everybody say omnipresence. Thank you. Yes, see that hand in the back, go ahead. Uh, Tyler, speak Kentucky. What's omnipresence? Good question, I'm gonna explain. Uh, omnipresence just means always present, always present. And we believe that this is a trait that our God and our God alone has. God is always present everywhere, all the time, you see? Now, uh, two uh, partnering traits that we often associate with omnipresence is omnipotence, omnipotence, which means all-powerful, and omniscience, which means all-knowing. And to be clear, we as Christians believe that God alone has these three traits. The angels are not all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. The devil is not all, this is good news, he's not all-present, all-powerful, or all-knowing. But here's the bad news, you do you believe this today? Because it's true. You are not all present. You are not all powerful. You are not all knowing. We're all creations. This is what theologians call the creator creature distinction. 
There are things that are true of God that simply are not true of you and I. And these are three of them. Now, that should, that should seem obvious to us. I feel like that seems obvious. We all know that we're not limitless. We're not infinite, right? But here's the catch. Everything about our world right now is designed to make us more limitless. Have you noticed? More infinite, more always present, more all-powerful and all-knowledgeable. Have you noticed this? The technology we create, the lifestyles that our culture normalizes and rewards, it's all designed to make us feel divine. And if we don't respect our God-given limits, it will crush us eventually. I promise you that. And it'll induce a lot of anxiety along the way. So let me explain it like this. There are people who are wired with different capacities. Have you known this? You probably notice this just like in your house or in your marriage or in your work team. Like some people can do some things and some people can do other. Some of you are, are wired with this, uh, this sort of innate omnipresence to be able to do multiple tasks at the same time. You're the king or the queen of multitasking. Other people aren't. They're more myopic. They got to focus on one thing at a time. And if you're not sure if that's you, ask your wife because she'll tell you, right? It's just like, can you focus on, yeah, right? Some of us have this naturally. Some of us have this natural omnipresence to manage hundreds of relationships at once. Some people's relational capacity blows my mind because they got hundreds of friends. They got their work friends. They got their church friends. It's like, how do you know all those people? I need three, maybe. All the introverts in the room. We just have different capacities. Some of us have this, uh, this omnipotent capacity to work hard. Like you can put in the work. You can put in 70, 80 hour weeks and like it. You have vitality, energy. It just don't run out. And some of you need a nap and that's okay. Some of us have this sort of omniscience, if you will, this ability to ingest the emotional power, if you will, to ingest the darkness of this world. You can see it, you can look it in the eyes and you're grieved by it, but it doesn't break you or crush you. And others of us have just a, such a tender heart that you were weeping during the Ace 10 video. We're all wired different, you see? But here's the deal. While some of us are wired to be more present or more powerful or more knowledgeable, not one of us is wired to be omnipresent or omnipowerful, or omni-knowledgeable. We are creatures, not the creator. We are finite, not infinite. We have limits. You have limits. And if you blow past them, eventually your body's gonna tell you. And you will either shut down from exhaustion and overload, or you will be ashamed because of all that you can't get done. And I'm here to tell you today that Christmas is proof of this. Christmas is the case study in our best efforts to be omni-everything, isn't it? But we did a sermon series several years back at this church called Christmas Caricatures, Christmas Caricatures. I have a couple of the graphics. You know what a caricature is, right? You throw the first graphic over there. Isn't that funny? There's a caricature of me. Uh, for those of you who remember Bob, throw the Bob caricature up there. There's Bob. And it'll look like him, right? Um, now, the, the whole principle underneath the series, though, uh, was this. The Christmas you is a caricature of the real you. You see? So if you have sports problems, 
Then on Christmas, they just get exacerbated because, I mean, there's just so much good sport. If you have food problems at Christmas, oh boy. Like there's a reason why people join gyms in January. If you have busy problems, then during Christmas, it just gets out of control really, really fast. The Christmas you is a caricature of the real you. Isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic? That the first Christmas was about God becoming one of us, but today we've made Christmas about us trying to be God by being everywhere, doing everything, acquiring everything. You see? Now, yeah, see that hand in the back over there. Go ahead. Tyler, chill. It's just December. Things will slow down once we get back to January. Oh, is that what you think? Oh. Oh, that's, that's, yeah, things will slow down from 100 miles per hour to 90 miles per hour, which is still blowing through the speed limit. I saw this meme online uh, the other day, uh, ain't it the truth? Uh, it says, uh, adulthood is saying, but after this week, things will slow down a bit, over and over until you die. And it's funny because it's true. <laughs> Christmas is only a little worse than your normal life. It's a caricature. It exaggerates your worst features. Every day, y'all, we pretend like we're little gods, maximizing our workday, then drinking coffee, and using AI to send emails and drinking some more coffee, then working through lunch and drinking coffee, and monitoring like a thousand inch deep relationships online and also the global geopolitics on the you know, news f- accounts that you follow while drinking coffee then firing off a few emails before bed and then waking up and sending off emails first thing in the morning while you get your first cup of coffee. Hey, despite the electrifying power of caffeine, reminder, you ain't omnipresent, omnipotent, or omniscient. And if you don't believe me now, eventually you'll find out. I was listening recently to Dr. Lisa Demore talk on, on this. So, uh, we have a picture of her. Lisa is a clinical psychologist. She's trained at Yale and uh, in Michigan, where she got her PhD, wrote a best-selling book. Um, she's an expert on the rising rates of mental illness among teenagers. Teens, you need to listen to this. Now, in her research, uh, she found, you've seen this, right? You've seen the skyrocketing rates of, of depression, of, of anxiety, of suicidal ideation. You've seen the statistics on this among young people. This is teens, 20s, like this, it's just, it's terrifying, honestly. We gotta do something about it. Well, she says there, there are two major factors that are causing teenage mental illness. Uh, the first one is this, the constantly rising achievement pressures we put on younger and younger kids. And the second one is this, the constant exposure to the people and the evils of the world via social media. Make sense? Translation, she's saying, we're pushing our obsession with being everywhere, knowing everything and accomplishing everything onto the shoulders of our children and they aren't coping well. Surprise, surprise. We've put the weight of the world on the shoulders of our sixth graders And guess what? It's too heavy for them. It's too heavy for you. And so it's too heavy for them too. People are legit. This is not made up. People are legit saying to their sixth graders, hey, honey, um, I basically donated my kidney to get you into the school. 
and pay for it. So what I'm gonna need you to do is I'm gonna need you to get the grades and take the classes here in middle school so that when you get freshman year in high school, you can take the APs, full load. And then if you take the APs, then you'll get into that college. And if you get into that college, you'll get that internship. If you get that internship, then you'll get that job. And if you get that job, you'll be able to have a vacation home and really live this thing called life. But it all starts with you mastering algebra in the sixth grade. So make sure after you get done with travel ball and you do your piano lessons, you get to your math work, please. So proud of you, honey. Road to full scholarship starts today. We haven't just shifted that weight on their shoulders. We've also put the weight of the world in their hands too with these little smart devices with social media access to everything. Oh, and guess what, by the way? The world doesn't love them. Not like you do. The world bullies them. The world shames them. It exploits them. It doesn't love them. This is the toxicity of social media. I'm not like a social media, you know, nobody, you shouldn't be on it. Let's just abolish social media. Uh, yeah, I was off it for a couple of years and maybe the two greatest years of my life. But it's, I was off it for a couple of years. I'm back on it now. Um, but there's, there's just got to be strong boundaries, right? There's just got to be strong boundaries. It's addictive. It's designed to be addictive and exploitative, and there's just evil in plain sight. So there's gonna be strong boundaries for adults, for kids, for everybody. Uh, but people just don't acknowledge it. People don't see it. The Russians see it. You know that, right? Well, that'll get an American audience's attention. Let's talk, let's talk about the Russians. All right, look, if you know me, I'm not a conspiratorial guy. I'm not at all. Uh, but I'm about to talk about the Russians in a sermon outside of the context of Rocky IV, which is the best Rocky, by the way down with Ivan Drago. Um, okay. There's this best-selling uh, book written by an American journalist named Anand uh, Garidharadas. And it's called The Persuaders. And what's so interesting about this book is that he opens by showing how uh, in June 2014, that's less than 10 years ago, June 2014, Alexandria Krilova and Anna Bogosheva arrived in the United States on a mission, a clandestine mission as Russian spies. Now it is widely known that, that Russia and the US uh, don't really get along on the global scene. Goes back to the Cold War, like Biden and Putin are not exchanging friendship bracelets and braiding each other's hair at night. Like it's just not, it's not how it goes between the two of us. So that's why these two spies were sent over here on a specific mission to collect intel, to destabilize American society using one very powerful weapon. Do you know what weapon it was, their weapon of choice? Social media, social media. Uh, the Russians actually realized that nuclear war was not the best way to destroy us because it might also destroy them. Uh, rather, they realized that fueling the dumpster fire already burning on social media was their best bet. They saw a hatred already there that was toxic. It could divide communities. It could tear apart families. It could utterly shame individuals. It could ignite our darkest emotions. That's why the Russians founded the IRA in 2013. You know what IRA stands for? The Internet Research Agency. It's in St. Petersburg, Russia. And uh, immediately they started recruiting hundreds of workers to work for it. Uh, and their jobs... Uh, were to create, clone, and manage multiple fake accounts. 
Anybody had their account cloned? I mean, you don't raise your hand, but it's, it's happened. They reportedly had to do three posts a day on their Facebook accounts, 50 tweets a day on their Twitter accounts, and of course, comment as much as possible. Uh, in the book, it actually shows some of the top Russian troll accounts that trended in the US. And you can throw the list up there. What the trolls sought to do is they sought to amplify and ignite a range of topics, some legitimate, in order to tear us apart. This, by the way, is a list that was given to the Senate, the US Senate, and a report on this. You can read them for yourself. Now, y'all, as you're reading this, I just want to say the inflammatory tweets and hashtag, go Google it later. You can see the, the, the troll accounts and what they tweeted. And I'll go ahead and tell you the inflammatory tweets and hashtags that the Russians were creating, it is the exact stuff people were shouting in 2020 and 2021 when they left this church. And it's heartbreaking. Uh, this is a picture of Luyudmyla. Luyud it's a good, good Russian name here. I'm gonna do my best. Luyudmyla Savchuk. She's a Russian journalist. And she uh, decided that she wanted to try to infiltrate the IRA in order to expose it. So she took a job there. And this is what she wrote of her time there. She wrote, uh, the realization that you can invent any fact then watch it absolutely synchronized with the media outlets as one massive information outflow and then spread worldwide, that absolutely breaks your psyche. Hmm. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Our enemies didn't create the vitriol and the hate. Let me just remind you. They threw gas on it. They recognized that something is so toxic about our addiction to and our engagement with this platform that they said, huh, let's do more of that and it will destroy them. And this is what we put in the hands of our children. A new report from the CDC found that a record number of teenage girls, mental illness is, is rising among all teenagers, but especially among teenage girls, it's, it's, it's steep. So a record number of teenage girls are suffering from mental illnesses, including depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. One out of three high school girls say they have considered suicide. Six out of 10 high school girls were so persistently sad or hopeless that they stopped regular activities. Jonathan Haidt, I talked about him a, a few weeks ago, social psychologist. Uh, in his research, he says that he's found that the main reason, the major cause, like, sure, there's a bunch of complex issues, but the major cause is social media. The research shows that girls are most affected, at least more affected than boys, uh, by three things when they're teenagers. Uh, social comparison, especially around how they physically look. Uh, signals that they are being left out inclusion, exclusion, and relational aggression. Boys in their teenage years trend towards physical aggression. This is just the research. They find that girls trend towards Regina George, okay? Like just going off on you, so. And here's the deal, one, two, three, you can see them. Each one of these are easier to enact and harder to escape on social media. So it ends up being poison for young ladies. Teenage girls in the room, and are you the section around here? I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to say there's anything wrong with you. I just want to make you aware so that you can walk through our cultural moment with discernment 
and thrive. I'm a pastor. I do not condemn you, but man, do I ever wanna say to you, like go and sin no more or walk in the light of Jesus. He's got something better than you, uh, better for you than this. Okay, so let me speak as a dad for a moment. Can I speak as a dad from Pastor Hadoff? Speak as a dad. The standards of beauty that are being sewn into the hearts of, of girls right now, it bothers me, to say the least. Our teenage girls are being bombarded with images of others whose beauty is artificial. And it makes every young lady even more insecure. And it's not just fashion models. Social media allows everyone to pose and alter their image. So even friends look more beautiful, more beautiful than they are. Uh, These filters make your nose smaller, your lips bigger, your skin smoother. Height points out that this has led to a new phenomenon among young women. Uh, They now want plastic surgery to make themselves look like they do in their enhanced selfies. And we're not just filtering our physical beauty, are we? We're curating our personalities online. Cheryl Turkle, sociologist at MIT, um, she describes the way texting and online messaging allow us to curate versions of ourselves that we bring to online discussions. So if you notice, if you're texting with somebody, you can't see their facial expressions and they can't see yours. You can't see body language, you can't hear tone of voice. And when you're texting, you have time to consider everything that you say and edit everything that you say. Basically, you don't have to risk being vulnerable. You don't have to risk being anything less than the perfect version of yourself that you want to project out to the public. But deep down, we know that we are all far less than the perfect version of ourselves that we wanna to project to the public. I mean, look, the idea that somehow our generation is obsessed with authenticity is just a lie. It's a joke, come on. It's virtue signaling at best. Ain't nothing about who we are online that's authentic. And we know it. And we're scared that we'll be exposed as frauds. And that's anxiety inducing. Turns out Tay-Tay was right, huh? Tay-Tay the prophet, she was right on this one. We're all the anti-hero of our own stories. Keep coming back, Tay-Tay fans. I'll try to give you something every week. You saw what she did to Kelsey's jersey sales. I'm just trying to grow a church here. All right, so let me, let me summarize. No, let me sum, bring it back. I shouldn't even have said that. This is an important moment. I'm gonna summarize. Put the, put the next slide up there so stop laughing. I'm gonna summarize, I'm gonna summarize the sermon here and then we're gonna go to church and, and sing some more. This is what I'm saying today. I'm saying that achievement culture plus social media, achievement culture plus social media, it promises you a level of omnipresence, omnipotence and omniscience that is supernatural and so very, very seductive, but it fails to deliver. Instead, what it actually does is it pulls you past your capacity as a finite human being and instead shows you all the places that we can't be that others are, you're not omnipresent. All the things you can't do that others can, you're not omnipotent. And all the problems you can't solve that others have, you're not omniscient. And the result is often mental illness. Make sense? Uh, Gene Twangy, professor of psychology at San Diego State, 
She's also an expert on the mental health of young people. And she found in her research, there are uh, two activities that are significantly correlated with mental illness. These will not surprise you. Uh, One is electronic device use. Uh, The other is watching TV. On the flip side though, I like these. She found that there are five activities that have an inverse relationship to mental illness. Uh, One is sports and exercise. Uh, Two is attending religious services. Praise God, look at how mentally healthy you are right this moment. Uh, At least it's getting better, hopefully. Uh, Third is uh, reading books. Fourth is in-person social interactions. And fifth, sorry young people, but it was on our list, I had to put it. Um, Fifth is doing homework. There you go. Now leave the slide up there for a second though, because I want you to notice, okay? The first list there at the top, those are what I would call excarnational activities. The second list on the bottom, those five, those are what I would call incarnational activities. Do you see the difference? The top list boasts omnipotence. The bottom list bolsters, or uh, the top list boasts omnipresence. The bottom list bolsters local presence. Local presence, you see? And the data says that the second list there on the bottom is actually healthier for you. So it turns out Twingy's advice here isn't just good advice for teens, it's good advice for human beings, all of us. When we try to be omnipresent, we end up being omniabsent. And I made that word up, but you know exactly what I mean, don't you? Now that's why we read John this morning. That's why we read John. Instead of reading you one of the classic Christmas stories, I wanted to read you his explosive poem on incarnation. I hope at least one verse as we read earlier struck you and makes you go back and read it again. Because John writes about the theme of Christmas, incarnation. Incarnation is when God actually bridges the creator-creature divide. That's, That's the magic of Christmas. And yet... While Christmas is supposed to be about incarnation, God becoming human, every December we make it about excarnation, humans becoming God. Rather than focusing on our local presence, we strive for omnipresence. Are you following me? And this is the root of human sin, y'all, trying to be God. Jesus comes to cure human sin and we celebrate him by reenacting the root of sin, the Garden of Eden. It was cursed with sweat, enmity, and thorns. Why? Because Adam and Eve tried to usurp the role of God. The Tower of Babel literally disintegrates human community. Why? Because they reached for the heavens. You see? And we're no better. We're no better. This is the catch-22 of our cultural moment. Thanks to technology, we are more omnipresent than ever. We know the struggles of the world real time. It's almost like when we pull up social media or global news on our phone, we can hear the prayers and the cries and the grief of people from the other side of the world, just like God, right? We're omnipresent. We can be more productive than ever. And here comes AI, right? We can build more massive platforms and transcend geography with thousands of followers. We have the tools and tech to make us more like God than any generation ever, but we can't take the burden of it. You know why? We weren't made to be God. You know what we were made to be? Images of God. And there's a difference. Genesis chapter one, we're created in the image of God. Yeah, I see that hand in the back. Go ahead. Tyler, what's an image of God? Great question. 
For the ancients, an image of, of God was like an idol. You've seen an idol before. An idol is a, a finite representation of the power and presence of a God. You see where I'm going with this? Now, one of the things that made Israel different, by the way, is that their second of their 10 commandments was what? You shall have no idols, no images of me. To which if you're an Israelite, you're like, well, that's not fair. All the nations are doing idols. Well, like, sounds fun to me. Why can't we, God? To which Genesis 1 replies, because God already has his image. It's you, it's me. We are the finite representations of God's power and presence in the world today. Think about the implications for you. There should be utter humility in that, but also dignity. He has chosen you and me to represent him in this time and place. In the city of Louisville, he has chosen you. In the 21st century, he has chosen you. And this is a hinge point moment in history, in my humble opinion. A lot going on over the last few years, ain't it? And for some reason, God thought that you were the right person to meet this moment. So let's meet the moment. Yeah, I like to do this often, but I pulled up the front page of the Washington Post this week. And uh, here's what I found. In the click of a button, I can tell you all about Trump's legal troubles. I can tell you about Pentagon drone flights over Gaza. I can tell you about big tech firms paying off university academics. I can tell you about sparkling wines from Spain that are both affordable and delicious. I can tell you about the gossips you should watch on TikTok in a click of a button. But can I tell you my neighbor's name? See, we know everything about what we can do almost nothing about and nothing about what we can do almost everything about. So we're called to incarnational living. And it starts with us humbly accepting that we are just images of God. You are not God, you are an image. We have not been created for omnipresence, omnipower, or omni-knowledge. We have been created for local presence, local power, Local knowledge. We've been put on the streets with street cred and street smarts. And when we lean into this, we're being like Jesus in ways that we can actually emulate him. He was 100% God and 100% human, right? You are not 100% God. So there are ways that we can't follow Jesus. He just did some things that God and God alone can. But there are ways that we can. And when we look at his humanity and how he stewarded that, we can learn, we learn from it. So this is what I believe I believe when we accept our roles as images of God, rather than aspiring to be a God, when we choose to live incarnational lives, when we choose to pursue local presence over omnipresence, the grace and truth of the word who became flesh becomes flesh in us, right here and right now in our time. Let's meet the moment rather than experiencing the anxiety of not being able to get it all done, all of a sudden we experience the exhilaration of making a difference in the lives of the people that we know. Rather than experiencing the depression of a world with news headlines full of corruption and violence, we get to experience the hope of seeing our homes and our church and our cities get healthier. Rather than experiencing the loneliness of having a thousand relationships an inch deep, we experience the belonging of real friendship, like people who know you and still like you. Rather than wondering if we can even go on in life, we actually get to live our lives for what really matters today and forevermore, amen? So look, uh, 
close with a story here. You probably heard about Asbury's awakening in February. Asbury College, about an hour down the road, earlier this February, there's like this, this revival-like awakening on the campus where, where students, this same generation who's struggling with devastating anxiety and depression and, and suicidal ideation, these students were struck by the glory of God. They stayed in the worship service after chapel and they had a worship service for 15 days straight where people were getting transformed and delivered. Praise God. It's the potential of the next generation. But it's interesting. The whole, the whole thing got, got kicked off by a, a chapel speech, chapel sermon. And the chapel speaker uh, talked about, he's talked widely, he's written widely, he's talked on podcasts about, about what he preached on that day. He said he had just gotten back from traveling. He had almost no time to prepare for the sermon and the, he thought the sermon stunk. But you know what he preached on? It wasn't a turn or burn sermon on personal guilt and sin. Instead, it was a sermon on shame. The pastor asked the students, are you struggling today to feel loved, to feel worthy? And that's what popped the cork. He said, bring your pain of wanting to be loved, but failing to be loved. Bring your pain of wanting to belong, but failing to belong. Bring your pain of wanting to matter, but failing to matter and give it to Jesus. And it just struck me this week as I prayed for revival here among our church. We're all carrying this burden in some way, this burden that somehow we aren't enough. Maybe it's because you have accepted society's unrealistic godlike standards for, for human competency or physical beauty or individual success or personal presence. I don't know what it is, but here's what I do know. That's not your role. Can, can we just all go ahead and agree that we are not God? Like there are things you simply cannot do, expectations you cannot meet, goals you cannot achieve, places you cannot go, mountains you cannot climb, people you cannot please, problems you cannot solve, sins you cannot erase, regrets you cannot fix, wounds you cannot heal, shame you cannot remove, guilt you cannot forgive, and an enemy you cannot defeat on your own, but God can, Jesus has. And he's inviting you, he's inviting you to accept that victory and join the army. So I've said it, put the baptism thing up there. The, 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 yeah, okay. I've, I've said it for a few weeks now. On December 31st at midnight, when the new year hits, we're gonna be in this room doing baptisms. We've already had 15 people express interest in doing that. Um, so they'll be here. I think you need to be here. If God's stirring your heart right now, then I want you to be here for this. I want you to sign up. We'll leave it up there first. I want you to sign up for baptism and come make the best decision you could possibly make moving into the next year. You know what baptism is? It's the ultimate admission that you're not God, that you're not omnipresent. You're not omnipotent. You're not omniscient. It's asking God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Wash me clean and make me new. And he will. He will. So 1 John, or excuse me, John chapter 1, verse 10, John writes this, says, Jesus was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. John captures the tension here between those who try to do it alone without God and those who know that they aren't. So stop trying to be God and instead be his beloved child, be his faithful servant. That's the invitation of faith, the invitation of baptism. Come be born again into a family where you can become who you truly created to be. I pray you will this Christmas season.